Record covers seem to have punctuated our lives in so many ways. They remind us of where we were, what we were doing, who we were with. They mark our student days, our holidays, our growing up and our coming of age. Welcome to the Art of the Album podcast, brought to you by Hypergallery. I'm Emily, and in each episode I will be interviewing an artist, photographer or designer responsible for some of the most memorable cover images and some of the most unusual treasures to have graced record releases in the last seven decades. Stereophonics, performance and cocktails by Scarlett Page. Since cutting her tour photography teeth at Lollapalooza in 1994, Scarlett Page has built an enviable career working on promotional and editorial photography for countless musicians as well as for personal projects. She worked closely with Robbie Williams, toured the world with the darkness, worked extensively with the Foo Fighters, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the Rolling Stones, Stereophonics, Black Crows and Placebo, and you'll probably recognise some of her most iconic shots from the last few decades, and she continues to be commissioned by all the major record labels to shoot artwork and press campaigns. Her photograph for the cover of Performance and Cocktails by the Stereophonics became one of the most recognisable cover images of the 90s. Scarlett was generous enough to take the unenviable role of First Pancake as the guest of our inaugural podcast episode. We got straight into talking about her cover image for Stereophonics Performance and Cocktails from 1999. When I was looking into the artwork for this album cover, when we were first talking to Scarlett about making an edition of prints, I found a post by a journalist called Tony Barrell. He's a broadsheet journalist, but he has his own music blog on which he made a post about this album cover. And he put it in the same space as the Burning Stuntman and the co- on the cover of Wish You Were Here, and Spencer Eldon, the baby from Nirvana's Nevermind photo by Kirk Weddle, in that it's such a famous image and such a recognisable portrait, but it's not a shot of the band, not of anyone known to the audience. And I was thinking about how, just like all of the hypnosis design covers of the 70s, performance and cocktails eschews the tradition of portraying the musician and gives us something more timeless to associate with the music within. It does so very well. It could almost be the cover for any of the singles on that album too. At the time, it was the 90s pop heyday, shiny photographs of Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, Destiny's Child, Backstreet Boys and so on, and it was always their faces on the covers. The same went even for most of the hip-hop releases at the time. So Britpop, or rock, maybe wanted to remove itself from that visual space. Maybe a band photo wasn't really in their minds anyway. When I spoke to Scarlett Page, I asked her where had the idea come from. Well, generally when I shoot anything for editorial or, um, you know, marketing or such, I, I, I have a sort of fairly loose brief. I have an idea of what I want to do, but I quite like it to always have that element of being quite organic and... Um, but like you've picked up on the performance and cocktails shoot had to be very planned and I'm not adverse to doing that you know given the uh, given whatever brief it might be but so it was quite an interesting one because it was all a bit of a test really you know it was a little bit on spec I was shooting it on spec 
Um, so, you know, we had nothing to lose by doing it, giving it a go. And the idea was formed originally from um, an image that Kelly, Kelly Jones had seen in an Annie Leibovitch book of, um, of prison mates kissing their loved ones outside the prison gates. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's an incredible image. And so we were looking at doing something in a sort of homage to, to that really, but um, incorporating the band in in the shot and um, and then sort of having a few extras filling in what would be the cover image square um, and then the gatefold opening would reveal actually the members of the band in amongst the crowd. Um, so, you know, we didn't know how it was going to work out, but we found a location, or I found a location which was a football pitch on, on the Westway, very near to what is Westfield now, um, and it's still a football pitch actually, but it had that element of, I mean it, you could see how it was sort of similar to to the original in a way, it had sort of the gates and there was a big open space where all these people could fill. And I was shooting on my medium format camera, which um, produce like six by seven centimeter negatives, and. I've got the, the actual ones here. Um... That location was such a great stage for this photo. The bland industrial feeling makes the strange theatrical poses of the characters all the more jarring, significant. I'm always fascinated by how a photographer finds their locations. Love hearing them go back to that early part of the process and remember. Aubrey Powell has told us how... With hypnosis, he spotted the location for 10cc's bloody tourists from the plane. Ladies and gentlemen, the seatbelt sign will be switched off shortly. However, failed safety... When stopping over in St Lucia, en route to Barbados for the shoot, and how he hopped off the plane on the way home with tripod and camera and grabbed the shot before dashing back across the runway for the flight home. Or Michael Spencer-Jones shooting Oasis on Berwick Street for Morning Glory, a street that is as evocative of the era as the album is. What makes it the right spot for the job? I wondered where this one had come from. Well, I can't remember exact. I think I'm. I don't want to take full credit, but I do think I somehow found it. Or you know, I think I've been speaking to my agent Penny, and and so between us, we were sort of trying to to think of what would be suitable. And um, okay. I can't remember exactly. But I might, I'll just take credit, I reckon. Um, and uh, it was very near to V2 Records, which was uh, their record company, which was on Holland Park Avenue. So it was like really within sort of almost walking distance. Um, and uh, we had done a bit of a casting as well to find some models, but the, we actually only had, well, I think it was three models and the rest were employees of V2 Records um, and then the band slotting slotted in so actually this this image shows um, the the setup without the band in the shot which is quite cool so we had empty football pitch and now we've got so the models were obviously the kissing couple and the guy laughing here um, and then the rest were either friends of the band or, yeah, employees. Um, and then, yeah, so then the other thing I did was I was very conscious of we hired the football pitch for an hour. So realistic, by the time we got in there, set up, wow. 
I think it was either 45 minutes. I feel like it was 45 minutes, so it was really like, look, we have no time. Not only was the shoot tight for time, but this is also a different way of working for Scarlett, who'd done so much live photography. She came out of that on-the-fly, side-of-stage, deal-with-what's-thrown-at-you-in-the-moment kind of environment and had gone on to do a lot of editorial for magazines that ruled the newsstands at the time. I mean, Enemy and Melody Maker were vital for music fans, and images were a big part of that. Smash hits, ID, The Face, Select, Q, Clash, Uncut, Kerrang, Mojo, and, of course, Rolling Stone magazines. When I think about the 90s, it's so full of that imagery from the magazine stands. The styling of the bands was all linked to that culture. So you have an album that's being released into that environment, but with a cover that doesn't share that aesthetic. I was interested to hear from Scarlett how it felt to shoot to a brief for a format that was so much more defined and arguably restricted than she was used to. Yeah, so there were, the time was tight. So with that in mind, I think I wanted to be like, uh, I knew exactly what I was going to do. Um, so I got a piece of acetate and marked it up in the centre. It was something I could put in my viewfinder and look down into my camera. And then um, I could see exactly where the, the sort of fold of the double, you know, of the the uh, gatefold of the album was going to be. Um, so that was really useful, although we had to crop the image anyhow because the dimensions of the 6x7, by the time you put the middle line, it's not going to work for a gatefold exactly, so we had to sort of crop down. Even though we were sort of doing it on spec, you know, the aim was to try and get this album artwork, So, um, and luckily it did work. Makes me feel really old to say it, but undertaking a photo shoot in 1999 was not the same as it would be right now. Pre-digital photography was a different beast. Crikey, when I look at all the kit that I used to carry around with me, to like on, on editorials that I'd go to... So at one point, when there was a lot of music in, in editorial and the music... Did I say music? Would I say... At one point, when there was a lot of money in the music business and, um, <laughs> and yeah. you know, budgets were large for editorials flying photographers to the states and journalists yeah. I mean it, you know I would literally come back for a day and then go back again to the states it was just pretty insane but incredible it's not like that now unfortunately but um but yeah so I would carry a massive suitcase full of my medium format camera with two polaroid backs so that you could check that the pictures yeah. were coming out and then three film backs um, which in, in, you know, each, I mean, they're pretty, the whole kit itself is really heavy, yeah. three big lenses, and then light stands, lighting. Um, I mean, I really can feel where the damage was done now, like my shoulders are like, ow. That was the, the you know, yeah, 20 years of carrying too much kit around. Um, but yeah, so so it's a it's a Mamiya RZ six seven that I used for the shot, and I used to use it all the time for for editorials and. Um, but it is a heavy piece of kit. Looking back now, and and actually, I do feel quite liberated in some levels with digital, in terms of just being able to cope with the amount of stuff I have to carry. But um, but I do love shooting on film. I just don't get the chance to really now. Everyone wants everything today, yesterday, in fact. 
that rings true in all walks of life, I guess. So we all know that advances in technology influence the way we live and work, the systems and paradigms we operate within, the way we think and behave, and of course the way we create. And that's kind of what has inspired this podcast. Because while we're making these advances, it's important to sit and talk about the new works of art being made for and alongside music, and to look at where we've been too, to remember what we've lost in terms of processes and what that means. I'm rambling a bit, but Scarlett and I talked a lot more about some of the work she's making now and how she's used her time this year during COVID lockdowns to push herself creatively. You can see that full interview on our YouTube channel. Just search Hypergallery Limited on there and you'll find us. I hope you share my passion for hearing from artists like Scarlett talking about such great images as performance and cocktails. You can view the artwork under discussion in this week's episode at the Hypergallery website along with hundreds of other prints of the most renowned and interesting album covers of all time. Thank you to our guests for taking the time to talk to me, Enigma Records for production, and most of all to you for listening. See you next time for another spin on the art of the album cover. <laughs>